Hello again. Hello. This is Hannah Smith of Friends, aka Roadside Shaman on Instagram. This is another fireside chat. <clears throat> this is for Open Lines Radio, part of the Art Bell is Dead family of independent radio programming or audio zine or netcast or podcast or digital archive or audio journal or you know whatever you want to label this little uh, interaction we have going on that's what I'm here to do that's what you're here hopefully to listen to it's uh a little before 7 in the morning. I began this recording at 6.39 exactly if you're interested in the numbers as I am. The uh, 3.69, the Goose Drank Wine, Tesla, 6.39. That's significant to some people. Um, I, uh, I said in my previous recording that I was going to put a button in the whole Thanksgiving thing and talk about it next time. Today, actually, on the day. Today is <clears throat> in the experiencing of now, if you measure when I'm recording this with standard time units, it would be uh, November 22nd, 2018. Uh, I'm on the west coast of America, California to be specific, in the southern portion of the state, and so the sun is risen, but given that we finally had the blessing of rain last night, oh my god, we finally had the blessing of rain last night and are still having it. It means that I can't greet the sun directly. It's just a, a misty, glowing knowledge of light awareness, um, but no direct gaze. <clears throat> so that's where I am. That's where this is beginning. Let's begin with the beginning. Start at the very beginning. That's a very good place to start. It's Thursday, and in the 13 moon calendar, in the galactic calendar, Thursday this year is a Dali day. D-A-L-I, Dali. The sigil for Dali is a circle divided into four even quarters. So in other words, a cross in the middle of a circle and it's a yellow field yellow circle with black lines <coughs> crossing in the middle so 11 22 2018 Dolly right yep there we go Dolly. I like learning these different days. 
Okay, Dolly, 11, 22, 2018, Thursday. And this is also a feasting day. It's very special day energetically. It's full moon. It's a portal day from a numero numero numerological standpoint. Master builder name. Holy mackerel, why can I not say that sentence? From a numerological standpoint, this is a master builder day. 1122. 11 is a master number. 22 is a master number. When you combine it with the 11 and the 22, that gives you 33, which is the ultimate master builder number, the Christ number, the Christed consciousness number. So it's an important day for a lot of reasons. Significant day. I'll say that. It's a significant day. Significant. And why didn't I want to talk about it yesterday? What's the big deal of Hall or Halloween? <laughs> oh, I love it when the little like verbal oopsies have like profound spiritual meaning. What's the big deal? What's the big deal with Thanksgiving? Well, It's the feast day for the settlers and the colonizers. It, you know, the, the stories we grew up with in elementary school were just marketing lies, bullshit, not the reality. And the more history I read, the more distressed I become. I, <clears throat> to be clear, I've never really gotten much to Thanksgiving. Let's just be real honest about that. Growing up as a very overweight child, extremely morbidly obese, I um, found food very complex and complicated. Very... I don't know, very, uh, there's a lot of mixed messages about food, because when you're growing up and you're a child, everyone's concerned with you eating and getting fuel, but when you're fat, everyone's worried with you eating too much or eating the wrong things, and so there's a whole lot of, you know, shoving food in your face with one hand and ripping it out of your hand with the other, it's just like, it's, it's just... A constant confusing mixed message um, it's diet culture diet culture is deeply toxic okay it's all marketing and Americans in particular I would say this Americans in particular more than maybe any other country suffer deeply from a disconnection um, a cultural disconnection to their food Never mind, you know, the modern disconnection that most westernized countries have where, you know, because of urbanization and because of <clears throat> technology, you know, we don't really um, 
we don't really seem to uh, have a connection with our food overall really anymore, like in any country. But I think particularly true in America because we're a conglomeration, you know, we're a mishmash, we're a prison culture, like there's just, there's nothing there, there. It's all remnants, you know? It's the bits and bops that we could each bring from wherever we were before that we can sort of remember that we have to use replacement tools and ingredients for. And so everything is not quite right, not quite the same. It doesn't have the same healing, holistic power as a natural diet that is built up and evolved over time by humans living in community with the land and the environment and the other beings and each other for a pretty significant period of time. It, it, there's just no replacement for that. All of the food science in the world, all of the collective data in the world, all of the, you know blood tests and microscopes in the world cannot give you the same kind of um, healing nutritional knowledge that you get from living in balance with your environment over hundreds or thousands of years or at least a few generations anyway I mean god I'd settle for a, a three three generations you know child you know, parent, child, grandchild, or, you know, child, parent, grandparent, however you want to look at it. If we could get three generations in a row in a land growing the food, eating the food that grew there in balance, that's, that's the nutritional information that we need. Those are the studies that, I mean, we don't need the Mediterranean diet, so-called to cure our heart disease. Do you know what I mean? There was nothing magical about the Mediterranean diet except for the fact that in people that lived in that area, if they ate the foods that were thriving in that area, then they thrived because you are what you eat, I guess. I don't know. The point is Americans suffer from a disconnect to food culturally, okay? And that means that all we have left is marketing. All we have left is what the capitalist structures program us to believe is necessary and right and helpful. And the problem with that is <clears throat> it's almost always lies and bullshit that make us sick and cranky. So... Thanksgiving has always been a hard time for me, regardless. You know, these rituals, these feasts that we're supposed to be connected to never made sense to me. There was a obligatory attitude by all the people doing it around me, like uh, the, the older people and the cousins. There was this obligatory energy, like we're obligated to do this. We must do this because it's what we do you know, of course this is what we do. 
it's Thanksgiving, isn't it? We all get together. We eat a ridiculous amount of really unhealthy food and watch football and fight about it and go home. Uh, nonsense, right? Because all we did was we just kept the vestigial consumptive trappings of the ritual. We kept the meal and we left the feast. We kept the food, but we forgot the medicine. There's no medicine in sweet potato casserole covered with brown sugar, nuts, and uh, um, marshmallows, right? That That recipe is something that probably you know, grew out of the collective soup of a Pillsbury Bake Off con contest in like, you know, 1953 or something. You know, somebody got real creative and said, I know what'll make this fun. Let's throw marshmallows on top. And then somebody put it in an ad and somebody brought it to a party and then it goes viral. And then all of a sudden, everybody wants to put marshmallows in their sweet potatoes. Why exactly? Sweet potatoes are already sweet. Do you really need more sweetness on top of the sweet potatoes? It should be dessert then. Don't put it next to my turkey. <laughs> Never mind the fact that we're eating turkey. Hi, I'm vegetarian now. I don't eat turkey. I was in more deep communion and fellowship with a spent animal than I've been in a long time. I have not, like, willingly cooked uh, uh, an animal from scratch in a long time. I've prepared meat on occasion for family or friends um, over the past couple years. I've uh, I've reheated stuff definitely lots of times, but I haven't worked with a full, you know, big cut of meat, bone, anything, and certainly not a whole animal in quite a while and it was difficult for me I was shocked at how difficult it was for me spiritually um, I was in a state of grieving for a lot of reasons um, but mostly just because turkey is such a sacred animal and so proud and divine and beautiful and I mean it's revered by many people not not um, not just uh, as a food source it's revered as like a spiritual messenger not not unlike uh, the owl or the eagle or the hawk or the raven like it is a great bird it is a great totem. It is a great guide. It is a great medicine. It is a great being. And the Turkey Nation has been desecrated by humanity. I mean, Jenny, oh, no.
it was in my fridge for a couple days because my family um, didn't have room in their fridge. And then um, I brought it back to my folks' house and I prepared the brine for it. I'm, I'm basically in charge of preparing this animal for consumption. I'm trying to honor it in death as it, I fear, was never honored in life. I mean, it's a, a mass-produced turkey, you know, from, you know, wrapped in plastic. It's not like we went out and hunted it. I didn't follow uh, Lokash out into the hills, you know, with a, a group of people to, to practice my ancient art of gleaning. I, I didn't do that. They didn't do that. They went to Costco, <laughs> you know, like so many, many, many of us in modern America, modern world. We don't kill the death we eat. We just eat the death. We don't go through the process of killing it. And I think there's something deeply sickening about that. I think there's something deeply sickening about eating something that died that you had no part in killing or that no one you knew had a part in killing that somehow didn't bless or transfer that experience or energy, transmute it. Um, it's not just about the protein. It's also about the spirit. I believe that. Um, yes, animal protein is hard for me to digest. Yes, I still eat plenty of animal fats and animal minerals like byproducts in bones, you know, like bone broth. Um, I will still consume bone broth. Uh, and uh, um, butter, dairy, eggs, you know. I try to not eat animal protein because it's very hard on my body. But from a spiritual standpoint, I don't like to eat animals because it makes me sad. It makes me sad to consume their grief. It makes me sad to build my body with their oppression. So I've been the one preparing this bird. I've been in communion with this bird and I've just been kind of sad about it. <clears throat> and I wasn't sure what I would do when the time came for me to actually unwrap it and start working with it because like I said, it's been such a long time since I've worked with an animal like that. I was nervous. I honestly got a little tearful when I was cutting the bag open and lifting it out and like, you know, washing it in the sink, rinsing, you know, rinsing it, cleansing it, blessing it. And I was just speaking tender words to this creature, trying to touch it as, you know, gra graciously as possible and just praying that it would feel the tender care and appreciation I had for it and that I know that everyone eating it at this table would be having for it. Um, I'm not the only vegetarian in the family. There's several of us now. And so there is a shifting consciousness about animal consumption 
at our table, even in the surface construct of this, like, quote, Thanksgiving feast that my mom is pulling together. It's a different sort of a thing. There's different people there. There's um, people we haven't communed with in a very long time. Um, people from, you know, family from the other side of the country. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this already or not, because I've been thinking about it so much, but um, it's the anniversary of my grandpa Buck's passing, departing this plane, you know, croaking, dying, passing away. So six, yeah, six years ago. years ago and and so that's today so I'm holding this dead turkey in my mom's laundry room sink and <laughs> I'm thinking about my dead grandpa and I'm thinking about is this turkey somebody's grandpa did he ever get to breed did they let him fertilize any eggs I have to guess the answer is no to that question just because, you know, law of probabilities. Um, but, you know, you know what they say about statistics. They're bullshit. <laughs> just kidding. I just, my rule for statistics is all statistics are 50 50 because it either happened or it didn't. It either happened or it didn't. That's a 50 50 chance for anything. Go ahead, name a phenomenon. And they say, well, there's a, a one in 7,000 likelihood that you will get struck by lightning. And there's a one in 140,000 likelihood that you'll get eaten by a shark. But there's a one in 8 million chance that you will get struck by lightning while getting eaten by a shark. You know, like nonsense statistics. And I'm like, all that is bullshit because it's standardized generalities from a specific standpoint and a specific experiencing all statistics are 50 50 because it either happened or it didn't that's my opinion i'm not going to get into a math argument about it with you it's more of like a word problem situation and plus i think it's funny because it makes math people really mad <laughs> and i like seeing math people get mad because I spent so much time mad about math that like when math people get mad about math, I'm like, it's words. I can say what I want. There's no formula for this. This is just an assertion I'm making. You do the math. <laughs> oh, thank God for laughter today of all days. Thank God for laughter today of all days. Thank God for laughter today of all Even when I'm being squeezed tight in the syrupy grip of grief, when Sintilo squeezes me and I can barely breathe from choking back tears, Abba Benielli shines a little sunbeam, tweaks my nose, and makes me laugh anyway. What a hell of a thing.
So, I'm in the sink crying with this turkey. I'm praying. And you must know there's already been days and hours and weeks of medicine gone into this process. I made a brine crafted of so many elements, so many sacred elements. Um, I mean, any witch's cauldron in any century, I, I would challenge to the magic that's in that freaking hefty sack right now. Well, it's not a hefty sack. It's a Costco brand uh, trash compactor trash bag so that, you know, it's more puncture proof so we don't have any leakage problems. Because FYI, public service announcement, there's been an outbreak of drug-resistant salmonella linked to raw turkey. So if you're preparing a bird this year in particular, try to be diligent about keeping the raw bird prep away from all the rest of your food prep and really be diligent about washing hands, be diligent about cross-contamination because salmonella is no fun and there are already people that have been radically sickened by this particular strain and also another general food PSA, don't eat the romaine lettuce, throw it out. Categorically, you just got to get rid of all the romaine lettuce. Apparently, um, our most recent uh, environmental protection People are not interested in protecting the environment or the people, and so they changed some laws about water testing that made it a lot easier for um, bacterial problems to happen, and therefore now we can't have romaine lettuce. So, thanks, you-know-who. <sighs> so very careful, very separated in the other room, filled with, I mean, let's see if, I'll just name some of the elements, and this is in no way a collective list, because like, secret recipe, but um, it's not a secret, but like, good luck remembering them all. Pink Himalayan salt, of course, um, I did put some white sea salt in for balance, I put, um, some of uh, my local herbs from my field, you know, juniper and rosemary and things, some from my neighbor's field, juniper and rosemary, some from my mother's field, um, a bunch of fresh herbs that she picked, like lemon, mm, l lemon verbena, um, uh, thyme, parsley, uh, she didn't have any sage, so we can't, to do that Simon and Garfunkel song. <laughs> Ooh, 707. My favorite Yay. Peppercorns. Tons of peppercorns. I put a tiny little bit of um, Burberry spice in honor of my sister who brought me that in her journeys to Ethiopia. Um, I put some sumac in it because I felt like that bright, tangy, almost citrusy quality of it would be good with the bird. Um, I had made a ginger honey, a medicinal ginger honey syrup that had been uh, transmuted 
into a homemade vinegar. And I used that with, um, you know, like an apple cider vinegar, basically, but it was a ginger honey um, vinegar. Uh, allspice. Um, uh, fennel. Yeah, I did put a bunch of fennel in there. Um, like tons of oranges because my parents' house is in an orange grove. Um, they have a lot of orange trees on their land. So tons of oranges. Um, an onion. I grated up an onion so it got nice and pungent. Um, so yeah, I mean, just tons of medicine. So much more, so much more. I can't even remember now all that was in there, but it was just, you know, dozens of ingredients in this brine. Um, more than 11 herbs and spices. Take that, KFC. So there it is. It's in there. It's brining. It's been in there since. Uh, not last night, but the night before. 24 robins came knocking at my door. As I went out, they went in. Hit me on the head with a rolling pin. That's an old schoolyard rhyme. Probably about some terrible desecration against Native American people. I should read about that. <laughs> Figure out what the meaning of that nursery rhyme is. You ever looked into nursery rhymes? They're usually terrible stories about horrible acts that people in power did on other people. So, yeah. I'm doing the bird, you guys. I'm still trying to convince my mom to let me spatchcock it, but she's not convinced yet even though I know it's the best way to roast it. It's the most delicious quality of meat if she lets me butterfly it. But she's going for that Norman Rockwell painting picture, even though she doesn't serve it that way and nobody sees it in the kitchen. That's her preference. And I don't have a whole lot of uh, momentum behind wanting it to be ideal because I'm not eating it so if it tastes dried out and gross then hey guys enjoy your dried out turkey I mean no I don't want that to happen I would be so sad because what a waste a waste of that precious life that precious life deserves to be prepared correctly so that it can be enjoyed in con consumption and not denigrated and talked down upon because if that bird doesn't taste good it's our fault not it's we're the ones cooking it. The bird can't do anything about it now. It did its job. It worked. It ate. It breathed. It got fat. And it died. The bird did its work. So don't blame the bird if the turkey's dry. Blame the chef. Even if they look at you funny. Don't say, this bird is dry. Don't say that. Say, 
Oh dear, looks like someone overcooked the bird. We better make soup instead. Throw the bird in a pot of water. Make some bone broth out of it. That would be healing. Bone broth is one of the most healing foods that you can eat. And if you're going to consume an animal, that's the mode in which I would recommend it as bone broth that you use to process your grains or your legumes. Because grains and legumes need significant processing and mineral support to um, open them up to uh, our use, our effective use. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse. Excuse me. So yeah, Thanksgiving. Food is weird. I always struggled with filling my plate during the holidays. It always felt like a weird contest I was playing with my cousins, my girl cousins specifically, because boy cousin food only food rules only applied to women. I don't know if you're aware of that. But food rules don't apply to guys. Like, boys don't have to worry about that shit. They don't have to worry about it until the doctor yells at them when they're 45 and their cholesterol level is too high and they're worried they're going to have a heart attack. Before that, guys don't, don't worry about food. They don't have to. They're not culturally conditioned to care. They're culturally conditioned to consume as much as possible, as messily as possible. Women are culturally conditioned to consume as little as possible, as delicately as possible, you know, far away from the sight of other people usually. So the idea of going and being in a group while everybody fills up their plate and everybody watches what everybody else eats made me feel highly uncomfortable. And like my totally like just ravenous, uh, lustful, gluttonous, fat chick wanted to you know cut to the front of the line and get the best piece of everything but my nervous scared you know performative self would wait until almost everybody was through the line see what everybody else had kind of served up and try to mimic a plate that seemed uh reasonable or like I tried to like kind of copy what other people were doing, you know, reasonable amounts that seemed relative to what they were having. I don't know if I ever got close because the only plates I can really remember visually from those growing ups is my, my cousin Kateri <laughs> and how it always felt like no matter what I did, I never had as less amount on my plate as her and my Aunt Susie. Like my Aunt Susie and my cousin Kateri would always just have like a tiny piece of turkey and like some jello salad. Like that was it usually. Like they would have like two two or three things and one of them was always jello. Like it was weird. And I could just be a bizarre memory from one Thanksgiving that I fractaled out and uh, pasted it onto all my other memories. But I don't think so. I somehow think that this was just their pattern. Brisha was the same way. She would often just put a little couple of bites on her plate. You know, 
on the other side of the family, because that's my mom's side of the family I'm talking about, on my dad's side of the family, I remember that, like, the big deal with that side was the rolls, the crescent rolls, because my Aunt Janice would make crescent rolls from scratch. This isn't, like, pop open a Pillsbury Doughboy can. Like, she would make homemade crescent rolls. And so there was, like, a limited number, and they were fucking amazing, delicious. They are like, what made your Thanksgiving plate meal? Like, you need the rolls that, like... You couldn't take two. You certainly couldn't take three. You could have one. And then when everybody had gone through the line, you could hurry back and rush and try to get a second one if you were lucky. Except for like my cousin Isaac. Like my Aunt Janice's son. So like you can understand why this happened. Like he did not care. He would pile two or three up on first pass. Did not care who gave him shit about it. He's like, I'm eating. I know I'm not. I'm not going to make another trip later. I'm not moving my way through the crowd. Like, cause the, 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 the dining room at my grandparents' house, when it was packed with all dozens and dozens of cousins and aunts and uncles, I mean, we're talking a lot of people here. This is a huge family, especially like for white Americans. We had a huge family, like huge five kids who all had like four or five kids in in one room, like on the regs. I think I had close to the same number of cousins on my mom's side, you know, maybe four or five fewer, but we didn't gather all at the same time. They sort of like came in waves. I remember like a few would come in and then two hours later, somebody else It was more like a potluck open buffet situation versus at my dad's side because I was on my mom's side over my my grandpa buck and grandma mary's house it was more like all day long and you just showed up and you filled a plate when you got there and you kind of you know it wasn't as it was more casual right at my at my um grandpa clark and grandma barbara's house my dad's place it was very like formal, like fancy, like spode china, right? Like, you know, bottles of wine over here and tinkling silver and china there and white tablecloths and, you know, it was formal, right? So we were like the potluck, you know, sort of football playing casual country tailgate version of Thanksgiving. And then we would have the more fancy Norman Rockwell painting sit down dinner with like past the gravy boat kind of situation. And we do them both the same day, mind you, it's not like we did them on different days. So like lunch was, ginormous meal and then dinner was ginormous meal like that was the whole day it was basically a whole entire day structured around performative eating performative social consumption and I'm just like it I it was a rough go for me I had a hard time and I wasn't just there like oh yay I'm enjoying this this is fun I get to eat my favorite foods like no it wasn't I mean yeah I had my favorite foods I I mean hi can we talk about bacon wrapped dates for a minute and how much I miss them there's no substitute for bacon in vegetarian world there's just not don't talk to me about smoked coconut 
coconut bacon. Not the same. Yes, delicious. Okay, and good on a burger. Can't wrap a date up in it. Doesn't add that unctuous, just slippery, fatty, salty goodness. I've shaved pig. <laughs> my my nephew Sam, who's a compassionate vegetarian, um, he when he first found out when he stopped eating meat and didn't want to eat things like it, it was like a gradual realization and process, you know, and like he was still eating bacon for a while because he really liked it. And and like he thought that like it was OK because he thought they just shaved it off of the pig. <laughs> they just gave him a little shave. I don't know if someone told him that as a joke or if it was just something that his own compassionate wounded heart held as like a stopgap for the knowledge that he knew he was consuming something that he loved, but uh, either way, shaved pig, there's just no, there's no replacement for bacon. I miss bacon wrapped dates, like in my deep heart space. I do, for sure and certain. But uh, I'm not going to eat them. I'm not going to all of a sudden change my mind and start eating bacon wrapped dates, you know? And it's not about the nutritional impact because the protein is minimal. And I probably have that amount of pork fat in the refried beans that I order from a uh, uh, Mexican drive through all the time. You know, I go to Pedro's. I'm pretty sure they have lard in their beans. I know they do chicken stock in their rice. So that's why I stopped ordering rice there, right? So it's not the nutritional. It's more the energetic thing that like, that's such a sacred, luscious, delicious food. That's, it's just an abundance, gluttonous feast food. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's local because we grow dates here. Right? Ever heard of Indio? Oh, I know what you may have heard of. Coachella, the, the music festival, Coachella. That region is filled with date palms, tons of local dates. You can get dates, drive, drive an hour or two down the freeway. You can find farm stand after farm stand filled with dates. You can go get a date shake. I highly recommend a date shake if you ever drive through Indio. It's really lovely, but I eat all the dates I want, just no bacon wrapped around them. And there's something transformative about enrobing, encasing, blanketing, t you know, tucking a date into a nice little snuggly, cuddly hug of bacon. It's delicious. And it's a desecration because that poor animal died to give it to me. So I don't eat them anymore. So, I'm taking all of this thing, this thing of like really struggling to enjoy feasting season. And I grew up out of it. I worked it out. I transmuted it. I got to the point where I was actually celebrating Thanksgiving the way that it ought to be according to the rules of that feasting holiday in our family traditional cultural framework. Like I was doing it right. 
I was doing the food prep. I was hanging out with people. I was enjoying it. I was doing good feast medicine. And then all of a sudden, I realized what Thanksgiving really was. And this was a more, it was a combination of some gradual realizations and shiftings and then some pretty dramatic ones. And like two years ago, I just opted out altogether. Didn't, uh, we didn't participate as a family. We just didn't do it. I think that day, that day, that year, Dave Truman and I got in the car and we drove through the Paula Reservation. We went through Palma Valley. Um, we went over to Pechanga. Like we just basically drove through the local um, territories. And I mean, this is all our territories. This is all indigenous land. None of it isn't indigenous, but there are demarked areas, boundaries, wherein their sovereignty is still honored in a greater degree. And so we drove through those lands. I think we stopped at a farm stand, bought some honey and avocados and some produce, you know, like we bought some food of the land. Um, I got some bee pollen. I actually still have some of that bee pollen. I sprinkle it and use it in ceremony and adornment sometimes. Um, we uh, <clears throat> we just did it differently. We didn't do Thanksgiving the way that we had always done it. We did it a way that made sense for our family at the time. And then last year, I was in the active process of dissolving my union with my spouse. And, and so... Um, I don't think we did anything. Maybe we were sick. <laughs> did we get a sick out? Sometimes you get a sick out from a holiday. That's, that's happened to me a few times over the years, not often. But either way, the past two years, I've not, we have not as a family really, quote, celebrated Thanksgiving. We've been honoring the National Day of Mourning in solidarity with indigenous people um, all over. But in particular, there was a National Day of Mourning that was begun in 1970. Let me see if I can pull up the little plaque and I'll read you the exact history. I mean, it's very <coughs> prevalent and... Uh, um, uh, it's it's what we would say is in heavy rotation um uh on the instagrams on the on the uh, social media so if i just go to search and i do national day of morning it should pop right up because sometimes Instagram is a wonderful research tool. The hashtag function in particular. 
Okay, here it is. There's the plaque right there. I love visual research. All that time in the Fox Library has done me good. So this is the National Day of Mourning. I'm just going to read to you the from the plaque. This is a photograph of the actual plaque. Okay? Since 1970, Native Americans have gathered at noon on Coles Hill in Plymouth to commemorate a National Day of Mourning on the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. Many Native Americans do not celebrate the arrival of the pilgrims and other European settlers. To them, Thanksgiving Day is a reminder of the genocide of millions of their people, the theft of their lands, and the relentless assault on their culture. Participants in the National Day of Mourning honor Native ancestors and the struggles of Native peoples to survive today. It is a day of remembrance and spiritual connection, as well as a protest of the racism and oppression which Native Americans continue to experience. Erected by the town of Plymouth on behalf of the United American Indians of New England. So that's what today is about for me and mine. I, uh, it's a day of mourning for me personally, individually. I spoke about how it's six years since Grandpa Buck flew the coop. And, um, There's so many other of my Chickasaw ancestors I'm mourning right now and feeling present with. And there's so much more I can say about it. Clearly, there's so much more I can say about it, but I feel like we're getting to the end of this. And yes, look, it's 50 minutes in. Oh my gosh. I think... I think this is going to be the conclusion. And if I have any other reflective thoughts about Thanksgiving, I'll bring them in the next episode. Um, oh, and P.S., I don't know if I mentioned this, but I am doing my castor oil pack. I did manage to get that routine going again today. So, yay. Um, I'm still sticking with it. So I'm going to read to you the introduction to this book that I have. It's called Chickasaw unconquered and unconquerable there are essays by Jeannie Barber, Amanda Cobb and Linda Hogan and the photography is by David G. Fitzgerald but the introduction that I'm going to be reading to you is written by Bill Anoatubi who is the governor of the Chickasaw Nation so he's our leader um, I unlike many Americans have another leader I can look up to besides that orange terror currently inhabiting the White House. I can look up to Governor Bill Anoatabi because I think he's a good dude. I don't know him personally, but like so far what I feel, what I taste in the energy of what he's working and doing. He's, yes, he is walking the middle path, but not in a way 
that seems to dishonor or in any way um, violate the principles of indigeneity. I think he's in balance. He's learning how to bring our people through whatever circumstances they're in. So he's a good leader. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. I need more data to be sure and certain, but I'm feeling that. So I'm going to read this introduction, and maybe you guys will get to know a little bit more about the Chickasaw Nation and our uh, people and our ways. And there's a picture um, of Turner Falls, beautiful waterfall with uh, blue-green water that can only be called Okchamali. The Chickasaw word for both blue and green and the Choctaw word for gray is Okchamali. And this water is perfectly that color. And there's a seal, the great seal of the Chickasaw Nation. There's a warrior standing there bare-chested with a loincloth, uh, knee braces, and um, a shield, a bow, two arrows in his hand, shells going across his chest, feathers in his head, one, two, three, four eagle feathers standing proud atop his head, a quiver of arrows on his back, short moccasins standing by the river. Must be Chiksa, or maybe it's Tishomingo. I don't know who it is supposed to symbolically represent, but it's a warrior of some sort. <coughs> The Chickasaw Nation is a collective mindset and determination rooted in community and loyalty to family. Like the hummingbird warrior, it is ever vigilant, industrious, energetic, and adaptable. The story of the Chickasaw Nation is one of survival, persistence, triumph, achievement, and beauty. It is the story of a people determined to not only survive, but to prosper and live well. Built with this fundamental ideal, Chickasaw government stands on a foundation that serves its people with the ebb and flow of history's events. It is a chronicle of unsurpassed natural splendor and spiritual connectivity to the land that can never be permanently separated from the hearts of Chickasaws. It is a collective mindset and determination rooted in community and loyalty to family. Like the hummingbird warrior, it is ever vigilant, industrious, energetic, and adaptable. Oral tradition tells us the earth began when crawfish dove into the watery depths of the world and built the first landmass from mud at the bottom of the ocean. From these early beginnings, all things good sprang to life, including the Chickasaw. It is interesting and insightful that our ancestors used the humble crawfish as the instrument employed by Abvenili to help fabricate the greatest of his creations. Size did not seem to matter, and like the crawfish and the hummingbird, the Chickasaw Nation has accomplished many great things throughout its history, even though its size was relatively small. Our migration from the, quote, place in the West is probably the legend best known and loved by Chickasaws because it recounts the great journey our ancestors made to the promised homelands 
in what are now the states of Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, and parts of Kentucky. We lived happily there until first contact with the European culture in 1540. From that point forward, Chickasaws experienced a transformation in their culture viewed as detrimental, but also necessary. Life would never be the same, and our ancestors knew it. Most Chickasaws embraced elements of European ways of life while retaining aspects of Chickasaw traditions. In this way, the tribe survived the tremendous social, economic, and governmental upheavals to come. Our reputation as a dreaded warrior nation brought pause to outsiders when discussing the possibilities of battle with our people. Because, <clears throat> because we were deeply spiritual and abided by the religious constructs of the tribe, Chickasaw medicine was feared throughout the southeast and beyond. The spiritual aspect of war was heavily ingrained in every aspect of Chickasaw life. The first priority of our leaders, the Mikos, was developing an understanding of the tribe's enemies and cultivating policies and strategies to protect the people from any perceived threat. They were also adept at the arts of diplomacy and business. Although our historic relationship with others was often based on conflict and intrigue, trade was also an integral part of Chickasaw existence. In ancient times, our national product came from the vast agricultural fields we generated and the numerous species of wildlife plentiful in the wilderness of the Chickasaw homelands. Our place of business was on the famous Natchez Trace and along the banks of the Tombigbee, Tennessee, and Mississippi rivers. We dominated much of the waterway between the Gulf of Mexico and the Ohio Valley region. Trade benefited the tribe in much the same way as tribal business ventures do today. The proceeds were distributed among the people with regard for their personal needs and well-being. The ancient Chickasaw clan system of family relationships and governmental authority remained somewhat intact despite the damaging effects of removal from the homelands in the mid-1800s. The clan system fostered a commitment to community, civic responsibility, and devotion to family. This belief in the sanctity of family life and the protection of each of its generations helped the Chickasaw Nation to survive the great tragedy of removal. It was instrumental in the restoration of the tribe in Indian, in Indian territory. Chickasaw people have always invested themselves in the well-being of others in their community. This love for their fellow tribesmen pulled Chickasaw society together and ultimately provided the catalyst needed to rebuild businesses, townships, and infrastructure for a new Chickasaw nation in what would eventually become Oklahoma. Adequate attention to physical needs, education, financial stability, and social acceptance of each citizen were, and still are, paramount in maintaining a healthy community. Once again, our ancestors had the wisdom to understand what was required not only to survive, but to thrive in a new environment and cultural situation. The clan structure of Chickasaw government eventually fell out of use and was replaced by our current three-branch system. Although the process of transformation was painful, change was necessary and the tribe adapted accordingly. The modern Chickasaw government consists of executive, legislative, and judicial branches similar to the federal government. Although its structure is very different from that of ancient Chickasaw government, the mission remains the same, 
enrichment and support of Indian lives. The Chickasaw Nation land base exists in all or parts of 13 counties in South Central Oklahoma. It contains rich agricultural lands, hundreds of miles of rivers and lakes, majestic mountains, densely forested areas of vegetation, and quiet prairies. The earth is clean and the wind pure. It is a sacred land to Chickasaws, as sacred and beautiful as the land they were removed from over 160 years ago. There is a unique quality about Chickasaws that distinguishes them from all other people on earth. It is an intangible element that marks us as great. History pays tribute to it. We recognize it in one another, and the world has defined it as, quote, unconquered and unconquerable. We are a proud people with the confidence of untold generations who have overcome every obstacle placed between themselves and success. This extraordinary book was created to pay tribute to every expression of the Chickasaw essence. Although photographer David Fitzgerald is not Chickasha by blood, his photographs have distinguished him as such in spirit. We salute his efforts. As we stand at the threshold of the 21st century, the Chickasaw Nation is confident of a bright future. Like those who came before us, we look to our children as the bearers of our great expectations. We endeavor to provide them with all they will need to assume the responsibilities of the next generation. They look to us to find their identity and finally to find their hummingbird wings. I love the hummingbird symbology here because it reminds me of my mother and how she's so dedicated to serving that clan. I mean, she feeds thousands of hummingbirds, thousands of them. Of course, it's 742. What a perfect time to end. I know I'm over an hour, which is longer than I usually go, but it's a holiday. It's a feasting day. <laughs> Get a gluttonous feast of words from me, I suppose. Um, and yes, there's always more to be said. There's always more to process and digest but for today the main thing I want you to hear is Chihololi 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 which means I love you Chihololi means I love you I love you Papa Buck I love you Leland Bruce Adair I love you, Mary, Alice, Davis, and Dare. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you, Barbara Bingham Milliken Smith. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you, Clark. Woodrow Smith. I love you, Grandpa Buck. I love you, Grandma Mary. I love you, Grandpa Clark. I love you, Grandma Barbara. Chihololi. Chukma. Chibisalacho means hello. 
I will see you as the Chickasaw have no word for goodbye.